1: Live from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound
2: Off. This is about infrastructure that can lead to economic growth for a generation. We need to make sure that we establish a comprehensive cybersecurity
1: strategy. Republicans
3: have a great chance of taking the House in 2022.
1: Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights.
3: We continue to open this economy slowly, but it's coming back.
4: I want to know what the theme is going to be for Republicans. I can't imagine a more important person in Washington right now than Senator Joe Manchin.
1: Bloomberg Sound On with joe matthew on bloomberg radio
5: live from washington where it has been a week and coming up on the friday edition of bloomberg sound on we focus on crypto to start a warning from none other than michael burry of big short fame of the mother of all crashes we'll talk to bloomberg's bed bane straight ahead about the move to regulate crypto we have been following crypto prices today after the warning from michael burry the head of scion asset management portrayed in the movie the big short when he speaks people listen he's closely followed by the meme stock crowd and i think we can add crypto investors today he's warning of the biggest market bubble in history says crypto and meme stocks will plummet creating losses the size of countries he says the problem is the leverage and he certainly got our attention this morning reading that story on the terminal we're joined by bloomberg reporter ben bain now joining me live in washington He specializes in financial regulation, so just the person we should be speaking with here. Ben, welcome. It's great to see you. The move to regulate crypto is something we're hearing more and more about and seems to be uh, something that we can't turn away from at this point. Is this inevitable?
6: Yeah, I think so. Thanks a lot. Great to be here. I think at this point, uh, it does seem as though here in Washington, regulators, lawmakers on the Hill have decided that something has to be done here. Really, we passed through the Trump administration. And the idea had basically been that a lot of these cryptocurrencies or tokens were considered securities and they fell under the Securities and Exchange Commission's regulation. And they would sue people who violated laws under the same laws that have been around literally since 1933 and 1934. Mm -hmm. On the other side of Washington, there's this other agency called the Commodity Futures Trading Commission and everything else like Bitcoin and Ether, these really, really large cryptocurrencies were considered commodities and they would basically look at the derivatives based on them. Now in Washington, there's a view, I think, that something more needs to happen. Mm -hmm. So you hear things like uh, the new SEC chair, relatively new Gary Gensler, saying things that there's really a gap in federal regulation when it comes to these Bitcoin exchanges. So the big cryptocurrency exchange we think about here in the United States, like Coinbase, for example, he says there's no regulation. Something has to happen. He said he wants to work with Congress. He wants something to actually occur. We don't quite yet know what that is. He hasn't laid out his roadmap. But remember, Gary Gensler spent I think it was years, it, certainly several years. Actually, now that I'm thinking about it, teaching courses on cryptocurrencies and blockchains That's right. at MIT—that's right. So it's not a new topic for him.
5: No, he's been talking about this for years. Now, I guess just to go back a second, are we talking about regulating those platforms like Coinbase or the currency itself across the board?
6: So I think you, you, you the way, the different policymakers talk about it in Washington is they kind of take Bitcoin and they separate that from everything else. Mm-hmm. So Bitcoin is at this point widely considered the kind of staple cryptocurrency. It's not centralized in the sense that Washington at this point doesn't wanna add regulation to Bitcoin per se. They may wanna add regulation to how people trade Bitcoin. So that's the platforms, that's the exchanges, that's the intermediaries, the brokers. Now you're talking about Wall Street firms wanting to get more and more involved in trading Bitcoin. So there's more regulation piling on there. Then you have everything else. You have companies wanting to raise money by selling tokens. Things that are look a lot like a stock share, but are actually digitized or on the blockchain. So some people say that's really just an end to run around you know, decades-old securities laws. And, and the SEC, over the past five years now, have, have gone after that. And the indications are that they're going to c- continue to and probably even turn it up a little bit.
5: We have less than a minute uh, here, Ben. Would it be the SEC? Would it be Gensler regulating this? Or would it be the, the commodities futures or another... Agency altogether.
6: That that that's the big question. So I mean, looking at Washington right now, it's it's probably a fair bet that Congress is not going to do anything quickly at anything, yeah. <laughs> let alone yeah. uh, something that's as complicated as this. There are indications that the SEC does want to stake out, you know, potentially more of a role here. Mm-hmm. So I think it's safe to assume that we're going to see a lot of movement from the SEC in terms of defining, uh, really, how they're going to wrap their arms around these securities that exist. Yeah. And, and really, you know, go ahead and, and turn the screws a bit.
5: Fascinating as ever. Really appreciate the insights from Bloomberg SEC reporter Ben Bain.
6: And we're joined now on
5: Bloomberg Sound On by Congressman David Schweikert, Republican from Arizona who serves on the House Ways and Means Committee and among other duties is also the Republican co-chair of the Blockchain Caucus. Congressman, thank you for being with us. You are no stranger to this story. You helped to write the Blockchain Records and Transaction Act how should this market be regulated and and do you worry about it being overregulated um
2: look i I have great fear that it's almost in some ways an unregulatable um market in many ways so how do you sort of set up that the the clearing the purchasing okay they have um, some consumer protection but you realize The ability to create tokens, um, other things on a distributive ledger, make it very hard to sort of put it into our current constructs that the way the SDC or even the commodities regulators see the world. And, And my fear is they're trying to take, you know, 1930s sort of model legislation and try to put it into something that's almost ethereal in a secure digital world out on the internet. Mm -hmm.
5: The chair of the SEC, Gary Gensler, has been pretty close to this story as well for years. He even taught a class on blockchain at MIT. He has been careful to draw the line between regulating the currencies, the coins themselves, as opposed to blockchain as a technology. And to make the point of how long he's been talking about this, this is an interview Gary Gensler with Bloomberg back in 2018 when he was asked about regulating
4: crypto. It needs to come inside a public policy envelope. That means we need to guard against illicit activity. And yes, we need to protect investors. The crypto exchanges, big exchanges like Coinbase, need to really come within either SEC or the CFTC, the agency I once uh, was honored to chair.
5: Is that encouraging commentary for you or concerning Mm -hmm. commentary?
2: No, actually, in many ways, it might actually make the market much wider, much broader, much deeper because of trust in it. Um, And you sort of made the point, uh, it wasn't in Gary's comment, there is a world of difference between what is a distributive ledger. Distributive ledger actually has some really terrific societal benefits, privacy benefits, benefits of tracking, you know... um, uh, the things that for a poor person, you know, uh, or do they have food stamps? Do they have uh, a type of medical Medicaid benefit down to um, smart contracts to, you know, triggers uh, on legal documents? But that's the distributive ledger world that so many people sort of get, don't get their head around and understand the difference between a cryptocurrency, you know, and also what could we possibly do with blockchain. My biggest interest in, in the crypto world is I want it to be vibrant. I want it to be available. But I also need, as it becomes more, you know, we're talking about it today. As you start to have folks who are maybe not in-depth in the technology, how do you protect them when they're purchasing or selling? And that's sort of at the both ends of, of the end of the transaction. So I hate, I don't necessarily want to regulate the technology in between, maybe just the clearing of it.
5: Should the government, whether it be the SEC or the Commodities Futures Trading Commission, cap the amount of leverage in the market as we look at the coins, the cryptocurrencies themselves, or should that be up to the brokerages, the trading platforms?
2: Um, My interest there is actually more that there be a way of public disclosure of what the leverage
5: ratios are. And
2: in all sincerity, who's sort of offering it?
5: Um, So and the anonymity is what you're saying.
2: Um, Actually, it's it's less the anonymity. I'm more concerned about the scale. Do you have some brokers that are over-leveraging themselves by allowing their client base to over-leverage using cryptos as a true gambling asset instead of a store of value? And, you know, I, I'm one of those who believes 2008 was an information crisis. We didn't have the information of what was underlying in the performance of the MBS. And what would 2008 look like if every mortgage-backed security there we actually knew what was performing and what wasn't performing. You would have actually had um, proper pricing much longer than sort of a collapse. Mm-hmm. Um, so that same sort of... Information sort of does a lot of good in avoiding crashes. Maybe that's um, what, what needs to be there at the broker dealer level.
5: We're talking with Arizona Congressman David Schweikert on Bloomberg Sound On. What do you think about this idea of putting circuit breakers in place like we have in the stock market to prevent losses from spiraling? And I ask you that following this, this warning today uh, from Michael Burry, made famous. Uh, In the big short, something we've been talking about on the program, that retail investors could be ruined by a major sell-off in crypto. Um,
2: Once again, I'm not sure a normal retail investor throwing their entire life into crypto is a particularly brilliant thing. Um, But I'm not sure how you truly make – and this would be a really interesting – I'd almost have to whiteboard it. I'm sorry to geek out on you. Uh, how you would make the circuit breakers work on crypto? You could do some um, uh, some backing off of the leverage, um, public disclosure of leverage. Um, but you know, i if one exchange has to close, this is the, this is a type of you know product that if you're not going to clear it on Coinbase, are you clearing it somewhere in Singapore or some other place? Yeah. So. It, 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 the, the normal sort of circuit breakers um, or timeouts or those sorts of things would have to be – you'd really have to think through because I'm not completely sure I could make that work on the technology.
5: Don't you ever worry about geeking out over here. We're here to geek out. That's that's why we called you. <laughs> Congressman David Schweiker. It Schweiger. is so true. This is a conversation that's not going to end. And as co-chair, Republican co-chair of the Blockchain Caucus, we'd like to stay in touch with you. Thanks for all of your insights today on Bloomberg Sound On. I'll tell you, we've got a lot more to learn about this, including the political implications coming up. We consider them with Bloomberg politics contributors, Jeannie Sheehan Zeno and Rick Davis. Could the mother of all crashes derail the economic recovery? We'll ask that question next. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg.
1: You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew
5: on Bloomberg Radio. Joining us as we keep an eye on crypto today, Bitcoin falling and slipping below thirty-six thousand dollars. Here, remembering it topped out above sixty-four thousand dollars back in April. And there's a new call as we've been discussing this hour for regulations in the crypto market of some form. Something we get to talk about now with Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie She and Zeno and Rick Davis. Great to have both of you with us on a Friday. Jeannie, does the Biden administration need to get more serious about this? When does the president activate the SEC to regulate crypto or is he even paying attention?
3: I I think your conversation with with Ben Bain, you made a really good point. Um, He said, you know, you can't really depend on Congress to do that. So to your point, I do think the president is going to have to move in the direction of having the SEC take on a a greater role, or maybe, as you were talking about, the CFTC. But I think we should say, it was a pretty tough week for crypto all around. You know, setting aside, uh, you know, Burry's warnings there on Twitter, you also had the FCA from the UK warning people that they could lose all their money, or they should be prepared to lose all their money. And what struck me about that as a pollster, that came out at the same time the FCA was saying that people who are using crypto or investing in it are having, for the most part, pretty positive experiences with it. So there seems to be this juxtaposition between these warnings that are fairly dire and people's experience, at least majority of people's experience with crypto.
5: And the big FOMO. Rick, do you worry about over-regulating a market that's just coming into its own, or is that the point?
4: That may be the point, uh, Joe. I mean, uh, the SEC has put out its agenda for 2021, and it does not include cryptocurrencies. So, for the better part of this year, what's left, uh, I don't think you can rely on uh, SEC coming into the action here. And they've been very clear. Commissioner Gensler has said Congress needs to really lead the way on this. And Mm -hmm. so, uh, you know, having talked to a lot of members of Congress and their staffs about crypto over the years, they're still on a very steep learning curve. I mean, this is not something that has come naturally to most of the people on Capitol Hill.
5: You are getting to a point I wanted to make. You ever watch these hearings, and I know you both have, when the big tech companies are called on the carpet and lawmakers don't know the difference between a text and an IM or an email, don't know the difference between an app or what they're looking at on a browser, Jeannie, these hearings could be mind-boggling if not just confusing
3: they can and it and always reminds me when I talk to students or even my own kids about you know tech and what's coming out and what's next I feel a little bit like those congressmen sitting there in those hearings um you know I, I do think and and this was brought up the congressman in your discussion with him you know when he said he fears that it's an unregulatable market is yeah. I think what the quote was you know at least now and he talked about how whether it's Congress or Rick just mentioned is probably not going to be the SEC, at least this year, that there is we're trying to retrofit into an old style of regulation. That's a very scary prospect when you've got so many people, particularly young people in many cases, investing in this. If the bottom falls out, the, the hit could be
5: traumatic. Rick, you know what it's like to prep lawmakers for hearings. Does everybody need to go to school?
4: Yeah, this is something that uh, everybody has to really start to understand and and study up on because it's not going away. Uh, as you've pointed out, it's it's a it's a real factor in in the economy. And as Bury points out, it could have a really uh, uh, negative impact on our economy and our growth if we're not careful. And so members need to recruit uh, staff from these areas who know a lot about it and. Yeah. Uh, and our regulatory agencies need to beef up, too, and, oh, and stay on top of this.
5: Maybe a crypto retreat. Uh, I'd like to talk about the political implications here with both of you. Should the White House, should the Fed, Jeannie, be more worried about a downturn in crypto and meme stocks? These were together in the warning from Burry. Crypto and meme, causing a potential crash that could derail an economic recovery, or am I being overdramatic?
3: You know, I think they should be concerned about it. Do I think that that is the largest concern? I'm not sure that it's the biggest concern, but I do think they need to be concerned about. And let's, of course, remember that if the Fed does raise interest rates, whether next year or the following year, these assets that are risky like crypto, that's going to have an impact as well. So these things are tied together. So I do think the Fed has to be very cognizant and concerned all all across the board.
5: McDavis, the other side of this is all the stimulus, all the cash that's been pumped into the economy. We we go on Twitter and and look at people talking about spending their stimmy checks. And you might have to go back a little while here. But a couple of weeks, a couple of months ago, that's where a lot of people were taking the money. Some people didn't need it. They had jobs. They took their stimmy checks and, and bet it on crypto and helped to inflate this whole thing. Can we trace some of this to the stimulus, not just
4: from Congress, but also from the Fed? Yeah, and it could be generational, right? I mean, if you're a younger uh, uh, adult and you've uh, been unemployed and you're getting stimulus checks and living in your parents' basement uh, during the coronavirus, which uh, a lot of families anecdotally have told me that that's been their situation, yeah. uh, why not go to the track, right? You can get online, <laughs> you can you can place your bets and, and see what happens. But it really has been more like gambling to these guys. This is not sort of long-term asset uh, improvement. And so um, so that is going to I think all these things are going to be uh, uh, open to discussion. And one thing we haven't talked about is uh, Biden brought up at the G7, the use of cryptocurrencies uh, through ransomware and yes. what a national security implication this could have.
5: So, genie should crypto be regulated like gambling, like a casino?
3: I, I think it does have to be regulated. I don't know if it ha- can be regulated in that way, but I do think it's going to have to be regulated. And of course, you know, we're talking about this Bury tweet, but he's also the person, you know, I, I have a lot of students who have invested in Bitcoin and GameStop as well. That's he right. pushed that. so They followed a lot him of those, there, you're right. They fo- not just him, but of course, he owns some of that as well.
5: Yeah. Coming up on Bloomberg Sound On, many thanks to our political contributors, Jeannie and Rick will be back next bloomberg's eric schatzker is going to take us on a trip to venezuela you're going to love this he just interviewed president Nicolas maduro exclusively who is pleading with the biden administration for a deal but when you hear how eric got into the country and what it was like for him to be a journalist there it's almost more interesting than what we heard from the president that's next on sound on i'm joe matthew and this is bloomberg Thanks for spending part of your Friday with us here on Bloomberg Sound On. Bombasts in Caracas. What a great read today from Bloomberg's Eric Schatzker, who traveled to Venezuela for an exclusive interview with President Nicolas Maduro, an 85-minute romp that's still reverberating here in Washington. And Eric joins us now. Thanks for being here, Eric. It seems President Maduro is tired of being isolated, even though I know he doesn't like to use that word.
8: I think that's a fair statement. It's time for change in Venezuela. Even that is clear to the president. The U.S. has maintained sanctions on Venezuela dating back to the George W. Bush presidency. But under Donald Trump, they got much more severe. And as you're probably aware, Venezuela is suffering the worst humanitarian crisis in the Western Hemisphere. Perhaps that doesn't mean quite as much to uh, An authoritarian leader, such as Mr. Maduro, as it means to other people. But nonetheless, he cares about his legacy, and he doesn't want to be the person who failed Chavismo, right? This is the political movement started by his predecessor, Hugo Chavez.
5: Yeah, He he certainly went for Donald Trump. He said the Trump administration caused a complete rupture, his words, between the U.S. and Venezuela. Well, by the sound of things, nothing has changed in the new White House. Listen to what he told Eric. Do you want me to be
4: sincere? Very sincere? There hasn't been a single positive sign, none. It's five months where, okay, they're settling into power. The only different thing, the only different thing that might be heard from some spokespeople of the White House and of the Department of State is that they agree with the political dialogue between Venezuelans, without intervention.
5: Eric, where is the Biden White House on this? Is he right? Is, is America's posture changing? As you pointed out, policies on Venezuela predated Donald Trump.
8: America's posture has changed. In fact, Tony Blinken, the secretary of state, said in January that the U.S. policy toward Venezuela now is free and fair elections. The U.S. policy toward Venezuela under Donald Trump was regime change. And the two are very different things, even if at the end of the road they achieve the same result. Regime change means you're trying to force out the leader. And clearly, the Trump administration tried to do that with these brutal sanctions. Didn't work. Trump is out of office, and Maduro is still in the Miraflores Palace. And that's something that the Biden administration probably needs to recognize that these sanctions, miserable destructive though they are are unlikely to dislodge him he has a firm grip on venezuela And if Venezuela is going to move forward and if the country is going to heal and if life is going to improve for millions there, it's probably going to have to happen in a different way. And I want to point out that that is the posture of the domestic opposition. Very relevant because they're the people who are going to need the other big seat at the table.
5: Mm -hmm. We're talking with Bloomberg's Eric Schatzker about his exclusive interview with the president of Venezuela. He called Venezuela a land of opportunity opportunity for investors. Was he talking about oil or more than that?
8: Oh, certainly more than that. Venezuela wants to be able to sell not just its oil, but its gold, its bauxite, its agricultural products. And for all intents and purposes, it is locked out of commodity markets today because of these U.S. sanctions. Maduro is almost certainly right that if capital were to come into Venezuela, it would be a land of opportunity for investors. There's probably an enormous amount of money to be made in Venezuela, but at the moment, they can't. And so this is in part a plea to the Biden administration and in part a naked appeal to, or at least, yes, a naked appeal to American greed, right? He wants investors to realize that there's opportunity and maybe that realization will help to put some pressure by the administration one way or the other. I think a fair way to to, to sort of conceive of this is as, as a matter of fact, he says it, a win-win. Maybe a win-win-win-win. In other words, align (laughs) everybody's, and what I mean by that is align everybody's interest so that somebody comes out of this, uh, that everybody comes out of it at the end of the day with something better than what they've got now.
5: Make it appeal to American greed. You're still writing this story here, Eric. (laughs) <laughs> I want to I want you to bring us behind the scenes Eric getting in and out of Venezuela has to be a story all to itself how did you pull this off
8: Well I'll tell you how it started. I've been talking to an emerging market debt investor about Venezuela for a long time. In fact, I'm happy to tell you who he is. His name is Hans Humes. He lives here in New York City, and he's frequently on Bloomberg television and radio. Uh, He's very interested in Venezuela, in part because he's self-interested. He and his clients tend to make a lot of money if if Venezuelan debt trades up from where it is right now, and we might value it, doesn't trade, might might value it at five cents on a dollar. Um, so we've talking about that, we've been talking about it, he has contacts in Venezuela, and about six weeks ago he said, you know, Eric, I really think they're ready to talk. And from there I was able to take it to, believe it or not, an interview with Maduro in the Miraflores Palace earlier this week. Getting in and getting out of Venezuela is a bit of a challenge, Venezuela, excuse me, you can't book a ticket on kayak. We got in through a, uh, or Expedia, or you know whatever travel booking system you like to use. Yeah we got in through the Panamanian airline COPA. There is service from Panama City to Caracas on a daily basis. So if you fly to Panama, which you can do from JFK, you get on a flight from Panama to Caracas. And it's actually a little bit easier than it sounds to do all of this. I will admit that I had some help, but it is possible to do on one's own. However, once you arrive it's a different story, Venezuela is for Sure, a risky place. It probably doesn't deserve the same kind of risk rating that Afghanistan gets. But you don't want to be walking down the street with a backpack. You do need some help. You do need some oversight. You probably need to hire a driver. Otherwise, you're really you may not be taking your life into your own hands, but you're certainly taking your well-being into your own hands.
5: Did you have security and did you feel safe knowing all of that?
8: I did, as a matter of fact. We had a driver. He didn't have a gun, I asked. Um, we were stopped by at a military checkpoint once, and we were able to get past it without having to pay a bribe. Uh, the reality is that the military checkpoints are there, not because they are trying to capture political, you know, to to take people into, you know, into custody on, you know, because they're opponents of the regime, they're there because they're shaking people down. You know, they check your papers, and if they don't like what they see, or they just decide to give you a hassle, you have to throw them a few bucks. That, unfortunately, is the way the world works in Venezuela. It was and remains an incredibly corrupt place. The state just doesn't have money to pay for all of the military personnel And so they take matters into their own hands. It's the same kind of story you get from the airport, the shakedowns that occasionally happen at the airport, people asking for bribes in return for your luggage because they aren't getting paid. At the end of the day, it's actually a really sad story.
5: I want to travel with Eric Schatzker. Fascinating story. Eric, thanks for bringing it to us here on Bloomberg Sound On.
8: It's been a pleasure.
5: Coming up, the White House marks a new COVID vaccine milestone. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg
1: Broadcasting live from our nation's capital, Bloomberg one to New York, Bloomberg 11.3.0, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew.
5: 300 million shots in 150 days. A new milestone in America's fight against COVID and the effort to inoculate enough people to beat this virus. President Biden spoke about it from the state dining room today before he got on the airplane to head home to Delaware for the weekend.
9: And just remember what the situation was like 150 days ago. We didn't have enough vaccine supply for all Americans. We didn't have the vaccine infrastructure or the people who administer the vaccines or the places where the people could get vaccinated. But we turned it around together by acting quickly and aggressively and equitably. <clears throat> we secured enough vaccine supply for every American.
5: And we're joined again by Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie and and Rick Davis. Rick, we've come a long way on this. There was a time when people were doubting the uh, idea, the goal of 100 million shots in the first 100 days.
4: Yeah, and now we're at 300 million and, 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 and making our way to... Uh, Herd immunity. So, so should President uh, Biden be declaring victory here? Sure. And I think today was a little bit of that, right? And uh, I think he wanted to get out before any other deadlines, like seventy uh, percent uh, of the population inoculated before right. July fourth. So, I think that this, look, it's all good news. The good news is these these infection rates are going way down, uh, and people are, you know, slowly but surely getting these vaccinations. But I I think the key thing today was that the administration maintains their uh, public posture to try and encourage every American to get vaccinated. I think that's still their strategy and they don't want to go back on it. There are still variants that are causing disruptions in communities and they and they want to get all that stuff behind them.
5: This all comes down to the reopening, right? When, when, when we really look ahead of the rest of the year here, Jeannie, you can't get the economy back on track without ending this virus. And there are still a lot of people who have not been vaccinated. The president made clear that's something he's worried about or What concern are you about vaccination rates stalling out right now?
3: It's a big concern. The president talked about the need to close racial gaps in vaccination rates. Um, he mentioned i mean i agree with what you and rick were just saying you know we've come quite a long way 175 million americans have had at least one shot you know if you had asked me last year if we could have gotten here i would have said you know absolutely not so it's quite an accomplishment but still there is a long way to go and the last thing we want is for that to either stall out or these other variants to come along and disrupt people's return back to some sense of normalcy just when, as we're looking towards the 4th of July holiday, things are starting to look like, at least in the U.S., like they're getting back on track. I think it's important to reiterate that that is not true in other parts of the world. You know, people talking about children being vaccinated here, other other people in other parts of the world are saying, hold on, we've got vast populations of people really elderly people and people with pre-existing conditions in other parts of the world that haven't gotten the, the uh, vaccination yet. So we have to keep doing better around the world as well.
5: There's a big but here, and it's called the Delta. Listen to President Biden's tone of voice kind of changed as he got to this point of the event. It started with great optimism, right? The milestone, 300 million, 150 days. But there are reasons to be worried.
9: The new variant will leave unvaccinated people even more vulnerable than they are a month ago or a month ago. This is a serious concern, especially because of what experts are calling the delta virus, the delta variant. It's a variant that is more easily transmissible, potentially deadlier, and particularly dangerous for young people.
5: He said go get vaccinated now and kept using the word now, Rick, how worried must this White House be behind the scenes when they bring in medical experts to talk about the worst case scenarios?
4: Yeah, because uh, it's exactly what you and Jeannie were just talking about, Joe, is is that the last thing they need is an outbreak somewhere that starts to shut down parts of the economy. Even if it's just one or two states, uh, these are all things that could have a really uh, salient effect on investment and in the future economic expansion and and and, and creation of new jobs, so uh, they they're walking on the head of a pin on this and so i think the fact is they are taking a significantly different approach they're talking about what can go wrong rather than in the trump administration just giving rosy predictions about the future and yeah. so uh it, this has been their strategy and uh the delta variant has given them another reason to want to approach it this way and and it's been consistent and so far successful. Enter the big boss at Pfizer.
5: The CEO, Albert Borla held an exclusive, sat for an exclusive interview today with Bloomberg's David Weston. I was really taken uh, by a lot of the comments he made, but, but, but really something to, to listen to the leader of a major pharmaceutical company. Remember, they, they're about as popular as tobacco companies at times. When you start talking about drug prices, they've been dragged up to Capitol Hill for their hearings as well. And he talked about capitalizing using this good moment, the, 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 the good reputation that Pfizer has gained through the vaccine as leverage to move even further and lower drug prices. He wants to sit down with the president, he told David Weston and other leaders in Washington, to make a real effort here.
1: I think it will be a great opportunity for President Biden to pull together a bipartisan coalition that will reduce significantly the cost of medicines for the patients which is the 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 thing that is
5: now problematic Jeannie she and Zena, would president biden be open to that do you think is that a pipe dream
3: uh, you know, I, I think he may be open to it. I, I'm not sure how much pushback he would get on something like that. But the president has been focused, I would say like a laser beam, on getting this behind us. So I think anything that he could do to move that forward, I think he would at least, and his team, would at least entertain the idea. So I do think it's an interesting prospect.
5: Rick, we talked yesterday about Obamacare surviving this most recent a Supreme Court Case, not to mention, gosh, a couple thousand legal challenges. Is this the next move for
4: President Biden to to make a real effort to lower drug prices? Well, it is part of the package that uh, uh, some of the Democratic senators, uh, the, the the more the left wing of his party, have been promoting as part of a six trillion dollar uh, reconciliation budget bill uh, that would be part of uh, a uh, the other side of the infrastructure debate, and so. Uh, there's definitely conversations about it. it. It's it's a high priority for uh, for the left, and and Biden has always been sensitive to uh, supporting uh, uh, efforts to try and lower drug prices. I'll tell you, that reconciliation's a far cry
5: though from holding hearings, creating a panel, doing this in the open, is it not? Uh,
4: absolutely. Uh, you know, these are right now pipe dreams. Uh, uh, another six trillion dollars in spending is a little hard to imagine right now, but. Uh, but look, I mean, you know, he's got to t- pick winners and losers. And certainly from a political sure. point of view, uh, the, the effort to try and lower drug prices or something that's going to gain him some votes. Is it good politics to be
5: seen uh, with the CEO of Pfizer? Uh, Jeannie, we saw President Biden head out to Kalamazoo. They've actually gotten to know each other a little bit.
3: I do think, you know, there is widespread support for lowering the drug prices. So I do think it is a good thing to be seen if the goal is to lower those drug prices for Americans. I don't think they should be seen hanging out partying together. And I'm not saying they were. (laughs) I'm just, you know, how they're seen, I think, is important. But this has been, you know, a longstanding challenge in the United States is the drug prices. And again, the polls show Americans are, this is one of the things that we agree on, the need for the government to address this there's no need we there's no reason we need to be paying as much as we are in this country for pharmaceuticals
5: much has been said about high prices about the the amount of control uh, that that the major pharmaceutical companies have when drugs are under patent but there was another point in this conversation that's worth listening to on a friday right we're all about to head home i hope for the weekend and just the idea of hope optimism of what this new mRNA technology could bring. If we cured COVID, if we could vaccinate ourselves against COVID, what else could we do?
1: The fundamental question that comes to me after this great success, it is if we were able to do it for COVID, why not for cancer? Why not for Alzheimer's? Why not for many other diseases that uh, they require uh, treatments? That's in general for the industry. And uh, ourselves, we are focused on uh, six therapeutic areas that they are covering a broad spectrum of uh, medical needs. Most of them are meant
5: right now. Rick, should the White House, should the government make more room for pharmaceutical companies like Pfizer to achieve those goals?
4: Yeah, I think that uh, some of these uh, technology breakthroughs like mRNA have really opened up uh, a significant amount of uh, energy in, in research around uh, medicine. And, and by the way, so has COVID itself. So much money has been spent in the last uh, 18 months uh, to come up with these kinds of uh, vaccinations using this technology, that it, it it significantly enhances their ability to be transferred over to other things, like the chairman of uh, Pfizer has said, uh, to combat uh, 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 cancer. And so we're entering a real renaissance, I think, of of discovery around the kind of energy that COVID is going is is giving us. And so. You know, it it may be one of the great effects of the largest pandemic in our lifetimes is to actually create a lot of new discoveries and healing.
5: Whether it's Pfizer, Moderna, Novavax, another company than Genie, is this the silver lining from COVID?
3: It, it is. And, and you know, I, I think we think back to when we first, uh, you know, the COVID first swept the world to imagine that these companies and these scientists and, and the governments could work together to get us where we are now. You know, many of us are, are luckily vaccinated fully or, or partly at this point. That's a remarkable achievement that we don't stop and think about. And to so the fun. discussion, if we could move that into other areas, whether cancer or Alzheimer's, that would be an amazing silver lining
5: stuff to be positive and optimistic about as we consider the way forward Bloomberg politics contributors Shi Sheehan Zeno and Rick Davis thanks for all your insights this week we do have some things to be positive about I hope you have a great weekend thanks for spending time with us on sound on I'm Joe Matthew this is Bloomberg